The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V, pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. Father, let's pick up where we left off last time and begin with this uh, this Correctio issue to, to Francis recently. I believe you have some more information there that you'd like to give us concerning this. Well, only that it seems to be... Going forward, in the sense that uh, people are expressing more and more interest, I understand. I just heard from a reliable uh, source that uh, the original 62 signers uh, now have more than doubled to 160 something signers. Um, supposedly, I mean, they they're now using the word scholars. Uh, some priests, some laymen. Uh, Bishop Fillet of the Society of Saint Pius X has signed the document which essentially accuses uh, Francis of propagating heresies. <clears throat> they say in the, uh, the Correctio that they uh, do not pretend to decide whether or not he's doing this uh, w willingly and aware, you know, with deliberation or not, but they're bringing it to his attention and they're uh, asking that he correct the, the heresies that he is spreading. In fact, the title is very interesting because it's De uh, Heresibus Propagatis. In other words, heresies that have been propagated and therefore continuing to be propagated by, by Francis. <clears throat> they want him to retract them or to correct them. No word from him yet, although others in the Novus Ordo Church have uh, actually attacked those who are making this correction are signatories to the correction of Francis. The odd thing is, there were four cardinals who represented, presented their dubia, their, their doubts or their questions to Francis about his teachings in Amoris Laetitia, that apostolic exhortation Francis put on. But it's not those cardinals, two of whom have died now, it's not the cardinals that actually followed through on this correctio. <clears throat> it is basically a uh, this uh, group of, you know, lay teachers and some traditional priests and uh, so on, and some traditional minded, as it were, Novosoro priests throughout the world. And so it's kind of, it's kind of curious. Um, I mentioned Rorati Chile website, uh, <clears throat> talking about those who might dismiss this effort as being of no consequence. And I mentioned at the end of the last program, I thought it was of some consequence, if only because <clears throat> what uh, the author of Dorati Celli says, that this is the beginning of a process, it might be a long process, but the, the ultimate outcome of the, up, up, uh, of the process would be not just a theological, uh, shall we say, uh, correction for uh, Francis's heresies, but an actual canonical <clears throat> address, addressing. That has to do with penalties, that has to do with practical decisions about uh, what do we do with a pope uh, they, in, their, in their own mind who is a heretic, who is actually a heretic who doesn't uh, correct his heresies. This is a remarkable development, I think, from those who in the past have uh, spoken 
against state of Vicantism and state of Vicantism, just in principle, he has ruled it out and and uh, and been been resolute against it, kind of opening up the idea that there could be canonical consequences to a pope preaching heresies. I, I thought it was an interesting introduction of that idea on their part, acknowledging the possibility that there could be canonical consequences. Um, and it says, for those who have the mandate to act on this, so it even implies there are those who have a power to impose canonical uh, and, and canonical consequences on a heretical pontiff. You know? So I think it's, a, it's an interesting development. Uh, the fact that there are another hundred people evidently who have signed on, and uh, I think you're going to find that in the course of time, as more and more people read this document, those who have the capacity, the theological background and so on, to understand what is being addressed here, and saying, yes, these propositions of Francis are heretical. As the people who sign on are actually saying that. They're saying that these propositions of Francis are heretical, and he must correct them, which is an interesting an interesting uh, development, I'd say, in the, in the Nova Soto Church. Um, so uh, I, I think... <clears throat> It's as though they're beginning to, as I mentioned last time, understand the gravity of the situation in the Novus Ordo with Francis. I think they're beginning to understand the gravity and uh, not only understand it, but now address it in, in their own way. Uh, address it to that extent that they're saying this is intolerable. You cannot be teaching heresies. You have to correct these heresies. We have to confront these heresies in the Novus Ordo. And Father, what, what do you think is the driving force behind all of this? Is it just that the Francis' statements have finally become so outrageous to the point where the, those in Novus Ordo have realized that something must be done? Um, perhaps. I, I think there's been a slow uh, awakening in the minds of the people in the, in the, the New Order that uh, they have someone in the Vatican who uh, they're regarding as the Vicar of Christ on Earth who actually is teaching not only pronouncing blasphemies, but he's actually pronouncing heresies, okay? And heresies in his moral teaching. Um, so, I mean, for example, uh, Tom, the Jansenists have been condemned for heresies. Jansenism has been condemned as heretical. And uh, in Octorium Fide, the, uh, the Pope actually condemned Jansenism for teaching some, some real heresies. And if you look at the heresies that Jansenism was condemned, there were five heresies condemned in that document. You can't help but recognize teachings of Francis, even in um, Amoris Laetitia. For example, Francis was saying Amoris Laetitia and commenting on it that, you know, there are just situations such that a person simply cannot help but sin. I mean, these <clears throat> they're just in a situation where they, they have no choice but to sin. And, uh, you know, you can't hold them responsible for this. And uh, you have to realize <clears throat> that the only way to stop committing this sin might be to do something much worse, okay? <clears throat> so, therefore, sin is inevitable. Uh, and uh, they, can't, they just can't help it, okay? Now, this, this proposition of Jansenist heresy was condemned. Let me, uh, this, this document I have here is actually a uh, 
not exactly a good representation of that. Let me tell you this here. Okay. Some of God's commandments, this is the condemned proposition now. Some of God's commandments are impossible for just men who wish and strive to keep them. Considering the powers they actually have, the grace by which these precepts may become possible is also lacking. So God is not giving them the grace. They can't have, by their natural powers, the ability to resist these temptations and to keep the commandments. And therefore, it's impossible for them to keep the commandments of God. In some of his commandments, they're talking primarily about commandments regarding purity and and uh, the marriage vows and so on. Okay? Now, Francis, I'm sorry, but it seems to me, for what it's worth, that's essentially what he's saying in trying to find a, a, a way of of accommodating people who are living in open adultery, if not justifying it, minimizing it, but somehow justifying them, justifying them for living in open adultery and saying, yes, we should be able to give them the sacraments anyway, if we decide that they're living in open adultery and they can't help it. I think the much of what Francis is teaching right now has already been condemned. Uh, the Synod of Pistoia was a Jansenist, Harris, a Jansenist uh, a meeting that took place as in Pistoia back in, what was it, um, 1686, something like that. I'm sorry, 1786, it would have been 1786. And the Synod of Pistoia brought up all of these uh, propositions about how the church should be restructured. And if you study what the Jansenists were saying about restructuring the church, you find that Francis might have well have just adopted the, that, that scheme. They were all condemned by the church subsequent to this. In 16, for example, in 1796, they were condemned by Pope Pius the Pius the Sixth. He condemned these propositions for the restructuring of the church along democratic lines and so on. And you can still you can go and look and see what the Synod of Pistoia wrote and what has been condemned by the church. And tell me if you don't think you're reading Francis. You don't think you're reading the mind of Francis these days. Um, so there is plenty. It's not just in the moral order. It's also in the doctrinal order with regard to the very structure and nature of the church itself. That Francis um, has left a, let's say, a wide open field for... Uh, um, just, you know, being found at fault for propagating heresy, uh, propagating notions that the church has formally condemned in the past. They just happen to have latched onto these. I expect that not only is the number of signatories going to increase, but I expect the number of propositions of Francis that are condemned will also increase as time goes on, as people begin to see more and more. Uh, that this this man has not limited himself merely to the question of adultery, that he's actually attacked the church on many, many fronts. As one wise gentleman, observer of the Catholic scene these days, has told me, it seems like the previous Novus Ero Popes have attacked, undermined the faith, but that Francis is out to destroy the church itself as an institution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems that they'll have to... uh 
make make as many amends to this document as as new encyclicals or pronouncements that, that Francis makes. I expect the document to grow and grow, not only with the number of signatures, as I say, but the, but the entries. Do you think that anything will come of this? Do you think that, that Francis will ever issue a response? Uh, if Francis does issue a response, I think it will be to condemn it and to condemn those who signed it. Mm-hmm. Um, remember, he's a, li- he's a modernist, okay? So he doesn't want clarity. He doesn't want to come out and say, look, this is exactly what I'm teaching. You're right. And you're the heretics. He doesn't want to say this is, this is correct and this is false. He wants ambiguity everywhere. This is what modernists go for. They're just picking up on it, and they're saying to him, and this is what the cardinals said. This is what the cardinals did. They did something. They, they committed a sin against modernism and wanting clarity, a clarification, okay? And again, I mean, I, it just amazes me that everything these men have got along with all these years since Vatican II, why this, why now? They've compromised in so many, many ways. What has gotten into them? I'd like to think the grace of God has finally stirred something in their Catholic soul to say, you know, I guess we have to draw the line somewhere after all this time. I guess we'll just draw it right here. But they didn't. They didn't issue the correction. They left it up to these people to do it, uh, to take it upon themselves to actually, uh, you know, take the lead in this. Notice that Cardinal uh, Burke, uh, they haven't signed this document that I know of. Maybe they did. I don't know. But they're the ones who presented the dubia, right? Why they wouldn't... Uh, uh, the dubia they presented seemed to be addressed right here <clears throat> as a correctio. But, um, you know, where is the courage now? I don't know, you know. Um, but I, I do believe that there is going to be an impact. I don't think it's an insignificant thing. I think it's... Uh, whether it's a great turning point, I don't know. Uh Again, if Francis responds to it and they back down, well, obviously that's not good. But the point is, I think it is a statement. It's like a shot across the bow of the Novus Ordo battleship, um, which is not the Bark of Peter. The Novus Ordo, the, the modernist battleship cannot be because the mo- modernism is not the Catholic faith. It is the antithesis of the Catholic faith. So <laughs> we have to get that straight. I think it's a shot across the bow of the Novus Ordo, led by Francis, that uh, <clears throat> this is uh, not acceptable. And uh, I, I'd like to think that many, 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 many people who are have been trying to ignore the gravity of the problem are now going to be confronted by it and uh, really take serious stock about what's going on with this new order of religion, this new spiritual order they're imposing, and realize where it's leading and saying, this I cannot do, I cannot follow this, this is wrong, this is not Catholic, that's my hope. Well, we'll definitely continue to monitor the situation, mm. keep our viewers updated there. Okay. If we uh, if we could, though, Father, I'd like to get into a few emails that we have here. We actually had a, a couple separate emails um, dealing with this topic of racial diversity or multiculturalism and, and racism, things along that line. So this one question here from a viewer asks if it's a sin to oppose racial diversity and multiculturalism. 
I say that I see no benefit in it and only harm. I know that different races of people build vastly different societies. A study from the Pew Research Center in 2015 suggests that by 2065, for every black man, there will be two whites, three Hispanics, and four Asians, thereby reducing whites to a mere 25% of the total population. To me, this is a tragic disaster because no other race of people will be able to preserve our societies, and yet I feel guilty in believing this. Is it a sin to oppose this trend by being racially conscious and building exclusively white communities without the use of violence? I'm not exactly sure where this writer is coming from. Maybe you are. I'm not. Um, how does it start out? Is it a sin to be against diversity? Is it a sin to oppose racial diversity? What does, what does he mean by that? I think the point is that... Multiculturalism. Does he mean in religion? No. Does he, he mean... Um, so. Okay. In civil society. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because diversity and multiculturalism have been brought by the Novoseto into their liturgy. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, bringing in local, even pagan customs into their liturgies, right? But that's not, he's not referring to this as a religious phenomenon. I don't think so. I think this is more along the lines of, like, citing this study, how he does about just essentially how the white population is dwindling and it's being replaced by uh, blacks and Hispanics. And is it wrong for us to be concerned about that, to feel threatened by this, and to want to preserve our white? society well when I when I speak I do not I do not speak as a Caucasian <clears throat> consciously you know I do not think in terms of Caucasian or white privilege I'm thinking as a Catholic <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> I have much more in common <clears throat> with a true Catholic black or Hispanic um, Asian than I have with a, a, a an Irish, uh, you know, uh, Monsignor McGillicuddy, who's embraced the Novus Ordo. I can talk to a traditional Catholic, black, Hispanic, or Asian, or anyone else, and, and understand them, and they can understand me about what's important to me, the, tr the love of our Lord, love of God, following the commandments of God, all the things that mean the most to me, better than I can talk to a Monsignor McGillicuddy uh, who's embraced the Novus Ordo, you know. The Catholic Church believes in true diversity. I mean, this, this diversity they're talking about right now is a sham and a fraud. <clears throat> when they're talking about diversity, what they're talking about is break up this um, European Christian civilization. That's their whole point. That's what it's really all about. They, they slam Christian civilization and they bring in these other, you know, often pagan cultures and glorify them at the expense of Christian culture and, and basically want to uh, use them as battering rams to destroy um, what you might call, uh, you know, the, the cohesiveness or even the monolith of traditional Catholic culture, you know, Christendom, what we, you and I would know as Christendom. That's what they're really targeting here. <laughs> I don't think they've made a great secret about it. It seems very obvious. You know, they use the word diversity and they glorify this as though it were some kind of, uh, you know, great um, truth that has been lost on mankind until the liberals have discovered it. <clears throat> but the fact is, if you look back in Catholic history, you find it's the Catholic Church that sent the missionaries out 
Now they want to, of course, the liberals want to uh, portray that as being conquest, you know, because they went out with the conquistadores. And they, they want to show that the, the Catholic missionaries oppressed the natives. Actually, they were there at offering defending <coughs> the aboriginal, the native populations against the very Spanish or, or, <coughs> or English Protestant um, or, or any other you know, country that sent them. The Masons were actually uh, the prime ministers of the primary colonizing nations. The prime ministers of colonizing France, colonizing Spain, colonizing Portugal, were all Masons. They were the ones behind the policies that were going on in those colonies. Not the most Christian kings of Spain and Portugal and France. Okay, It was the Jesuits and the Franciscans often who spoke up to defend the native populations whom they were trying to convert to the faith. And whom they, by the way, wanted to make autonomous. And this was one of the great um, controversies of the day, that the missionaries are trying to teach the natives, <coughs> whom they can call Indians, <coughs> to be able to plant their own crops and therefore grow their own food, to weave their own fabrics, to manufacture their own guns, if they needed to, and weapons, so they could be autonomous. <coughs> but the, the, uh, the ministers of the governments of France and Spain and Portugal were determined to keep those people enslaved as colonists and, and uh, as sources of wealth to feed the, uh, the crown. Okay? And that is one reason for the reductions. That's why the reductions of Paraguay were targeted by the Masons for destruction because the Jesuits there were teaching the peoples to be independent, autonomous. And that was not acceptable. So um, as far as multiculturalism, yes, the missionaries brought the culture of Christian Europe to these people. But the only culture of the people that they tried to get them to give up were the pagan aspects of their culture, the worship of false gods. We have to remember that the, the native peoples in these, in these areas were in fact worshipping de demons. And they were worshipping in exactly the right way, the way you would worship a demon. You worship them by sins. By what kind of sins? Murder, <coughs> putting to death uh, the peoples you subjugated in your empire, like the, the, the Aztecs are famous for this with the temple to their hummingbird god, uh, smashing over the chests of <clears throat> those they had conquered, and, and those whom they continued to demand tribute from, those subject peoples, smashing open their chests and ripping their hearts out, <clears throat> this was a way of life for them. This, this was their culture. Okay, <clears throat> There were hundreds, of, if not thousands, of native peoples from the area, what we now know as Mexico, who joined the conquistadors to overthrow the tyranny of the Aztecs. It wasn't just Cortes with a few hundred of his soldiers, uh, some of whom got eaten <laughs> by the Aztecs. Uh, no, no, he was backed up by, for every, for every European he brought with him, there might have been a thousand, not a thousand, but, but there might have been well over, you know, a, a hundred 
native uh, natives there in the area who were actually uh, hoping that he would overthrow the Aztec Empire because they had not been able to do so. And the Aztecs have been de demanding tribute of their not only their gold and, and, and their and their whatever other wealth they had, but their their children, demanding them for sacrifice for human sacrifice. <clears throat> this was the native culture that we're supposed to uh, beat our breasts and say, you know, mea culpa for having overcome that, for having put an end to that, for having stopped Montezuma from his uh, civilization built upon the. Uh, the, the crushed rib cages of thousands of victims to a demon god? No, we're not going to repent of that. We're not going to apologize for it. Um, it's actually one of the glories of the church. We succeeded in overcoming and putting it into that. <clears throat> These are the people, by the way, the people who are blaming the church for this are the ones who are doing this to the babies now in the womb. They're the ones who are boarding the babies. They've killed many more people. They've killed many more innocent babies than Montezuma <coughs> butchered to the hummingbird god of the Aztecs. Many more people than Stalin or Hitler, the abortionists. And they have the nerve to press for so-called multiculturalism. I can see why they want to bring back multiculturalism. Yeah, let's bring back Montezuma. Let's bring back all the, all the, uh, the murderous regimes we can. Uh, and all their devil worship, because this, this is how, let's face it, this is how they make their living. They glory in this, okay? I'm sorry, but it's true. It's a form of devil worship. It all goes back to that, demon worship. So in any case, Tom, if that's what you mean by multiculturalism, we want no part of it. If that's what they mean by diversity, we want no part of it. We've got to oppose that. Like the missionaries who first went out in the world had to deal with this kind of thing. <clears throat> If we, have to, uh, if we have to apologize for, for putting clothes on people who are walking around in the middle of winter covered with nothing but mud to keep them warm, and that's what the natives out in California were doing. Some of the Indian tribes out in California went around in their birthday suits when it was warm weather, and then when the cold weather hit, they just slid alive themselves in mud. Now, do we want to bring that back? Yeah, some of them would. They'd love to bring that back. Why? It's perfectly natural to do that, you know? But I'll tell you, when human beings stop, when human beings fall into the worship of, of, of uh, demons, they don't just become animals, they become demons. They act like demons because they have souls. And, they, and a human being, a fallen human being, cannot simply live like an animal. <clears throat> a corrupt human being becomes like a, the devil he worships, falls into demonism and becomes one of them, okay? and his cruelty and his savagery, okay? And does things that no animal would do to another animal. Loving to see the suffering and the, and the anguish and misery of their, of their enemies. This is, this is uh, the, the thing that the Catholic missionaries went out to overcome. And they did, they did very well, often at the expense of their own lives. Mm -hmm. We're not going to apologize for that to these people, no way. So, um, you shouldn't, in answer to our writer here, you shouldn't feel bad if you say that, if that's what they mean by multiculturalism, I want nothing to do with it. I'll do everything I can to oppose it. <clears throat> On the other hand, if they're talking about multiculturalism, <clears throat> accepting the legitimate and honest and, and good, like the Romans, there's much of Roman culture 
and much of Greek culture that is independent of their worship of false gods, practices that are very natural and very acceptable to us, you know, that we can reason, that we can accept, you know. There was a Christian humanism and a, an anti-Christian humanism that, that, you know, was rife during the Renaissance. And the Christian humanism glorified what was truly human, even according to human nature as God created it. Now, that's true multiculturalism there. And um, so we find uh, there are many things. I mean, you, you can't find, I, I think, a multiculturalism so universally accepted as at the table. <clears throat> when it comes to the diversity of cuisine, <clears throat> I mean, let's face it. We love to experiment. We love to take part in the, in the foods that are enjoyed, were developed by peoples of the world. I mean, we find this quite wonderful. That kind of multiculturalism is fine. The fashions, insofar as they're modest, they can, they can be very charming, you know. And uh, other, other aspects of their culture, they can be very innocent and, and actually, yes, are worthy of uh, not necessarily want to incorporate them into liturgy, the worship of God, right? That's not, that's not necessarily the point here. But uh, if if the if the resistance to these legitimate and honest and worthy customs of peoples um, are opposed because of a certain um, malice against those people, just because of their their heritage, that is wrong. The church has always condemned that as sinful. Okay insofar as we condemn of a culture, whether it be even our own culture. We might say, now we have the abortion culture. Okay, well, if that's ours, I condemn that, you know. There are things of our own culture that are opposed to our faith that we need to condemn. So anything that is contrary to our faith, anything that is contrary to God's will, as manifested to us through our faith, we have to oppose whether it belong, be part of other people's cultures or our own, our own culture. We need to stand for our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the important thing here. Father, as Americans, though, should we be concerned that, that our country and, and our culture is being overtaken by so many other types of cultures? And you know how America is referred to as a great melting pot. Mm-hmm. What about those who say that, that the melting pot is overflowing, that that our our nation is now becoming so divided because we have so many different cultures that we're trying to mix together and it's just not working anymore. Well, Tom, those people who see that are recognizing that there's a war going on and we're under attack and the whole purpose is to destroy, as I say, Western Christian civilization. That's what this is all about. It's not just happening in America. It's happening all over Europe right now. Why? Precisely because... Any, any traces of Western Christian civilization must be destroyed by watering them down and drowning them in this, in this multicultural pot that they're creating here. And, yeah, it is something that is, uh, it is part of the anti-Christian warfare going on right now. Mm-hmm. <coughs> uh, to destroy even the vestiges of Christian civilization. That, that's, that's my point. That we have to oppose, to fight for it. Um, who, who is doing this? The one-worlders. You know why? 
For the same reason, the Roman Empire would not accept Christ. <clears throat> At the same time, the Roman Empire was incorporating all these different gods of all these conquered peoples into their pantheon. They would never accept Christ. I understand, this is what I was told, I believe it's true, I haven't seen any evidence to the contrary, that for a new god to be added to the Roman roster of gods, <clears throat> that god had to be sort of voted in by the Roman Senate to be made legal, so that the the homage to that god would be considered to be <clears throat> acceptable and legal in the Roman Empire. But the Roman Senate would never <clears throat> vote to legalize Christianity because <clears throat> Christ taught that all these other gods are devils. There are no other gods. There's only one true God. And uh, <clears throat> that they would never approve Christianity because Christ does not accept. He's not just one of many gods. There was no way to incorporate them into a pantheon. It's one true God. They didn't have room for the one true God. They had room for all these other de devils they worshipped, but not for him. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? So all that time, you had ten great persecutions, but even when the persecutions were not, were not active, or as active as the great, the great persecutions, Christianity was still always illegal in the empire. Even if it wasn't, it wasn't being persecuted, actively by emperors or magistrates. It was always illegal. Until Constantine, by the East of Milan, actually made it legal. Declared it to be legal. To be a Christian. Took all that time. 250 years or so. <clears throat> so, in any case, um, they can bring in all these other pagan cultures <clears throat> because they're so ecumenical. Oh, you got another god? Great. Got plenty of room here, you know? We'll just put another picture up on the wall or, you know, another niche. Plenty of room. Hey, in, in hell, they're, they're, they got plenty of room down there, you know? But, uh, but there's no room for, for Christ in that scenario. And they, that's why they have to get rid of him. That's why the, 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 the mission of Voltaire, as he himself expressed it, was to erase the very memory of Christ. And Christianity. <clears throat> because he doesn't fit in the world, in, he doesn't fit into the hell they want to create here. You know, that, that idea sounds, sounds uh, harmonious with, with modernism, where they say that there's an element of truth in all religions. So, I mean, pretty much any religion is fine, except for the one true religion. You can't say that there's only one true religion. You can't say that. But as long as any other religion, there's there's an element of truth in, in any of those. It seems mm. that, that that's kind of that, that same idea. Insofar as they consider the truth. If you ask for a definition of truth, you find that it excludes what you and I believe as truth. Yeah, you that's know? true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> if, if we could, the Father, one more quick, quick question. Uh, we had a viewer who who wrote an email asking for advice on how to deal with those who who uh, have some kind of racism or some kind of bias or, or prejudice against certain, uh, whether it be a race or certain ethnicities. Uh, we had a, a particular writer say that they encounter this among even their traditional Catholic friends, mm. where some of them will 
kind of uh, they'll re refer to black people using the N-word. They'll, they'll say how they don't want to go to a specific type of doctor, maybe an Indian doctor. They don't want to go to them. They would rather find a white doctor, something like that. And this, this viewer said that they have tried to approach these people charitably, tried to kind of open their eyes to what they're doing, all to no avail. So would you have any advice for someone? Well, like insofar that? as somebody might say, I feel more comfortable going to, or I think I can communicate better with, you know, somebody of my own... Mm -hmm ethnicity or whatever well okay that's a person that that doesn't indicate any animosity toward some of the other races say I feel more comfortable with that okay but insofar as in principle they say I will not go to um, I will not sell uh, to or I will not buy from someone just because he's of a different color your skin is of a different color or whatever that's not right that is that is wrong. That prejudice is there. And, uh, you know, our Lord, look, the church herself has set the example for all the years. Look at the work of the missionaries she sent out. Look at how they, they went throughout the world and, and paying their own lives as our Lord came and gave his life. These missionaries thought it was a privilege to be able to go to peoples that were not of their ethnic background. They left their homes and their countries behind and went and lived night and day, year after year after year with uh, people who are not only strangers to them, but of a completely different ethnic background. And, uh, and they learned the, the legitimate customs of theirs. And they did this out of love for them to bring, take their, their you know, the, the faith of our Lord so these people would know that Christ was their Savior too. That Christ is as much the Savior of someone in the Congo as someone in Iceland, as someone in Manhattan or in Ohio. And um, this, is the, this is the mentality of the Catholic Church. That's why it's the Catholic Church. It's the church for all mankind, regardless of their race. Uh, that we all, we all uh, have that common father in, in, in Adam, and they wanted to give all of them the common father also in Abraham, the father in faith, who believed in the Messiah and the Redeemer, right? Through whom the Messiah and the Redeemer was born. This is the Messiah and the Redeemer of all mankind. And um, this is this is what a, the mentality a Catholic has to have to really be a Catholic. So if you have traditional Catholics who don't, who don't see it that way, I mean, sure, they may see they may see that you know this particular race of person, that particular race of person, they say uh, commits these crimes or has this this arrest record or you know, that has their reputation. But for them to say that people of this color commit those crimes, people of my color don't, that's not true. That's completely pharisaical. Okay? And I would say this. I mean, I know there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of accusation out there now about the black people in this country having a high crime rate, killing each other. You know, they're at a great rate and um, being more prone to commit all these crimes, I consider them to be victims of the white liberals. I think the white liberals have done this to them by their liberalism and their welfare state business. And uh, unfortunately, they, they have had black people who are willing to go along with them in this. But uh, I don't think they could have done this, even to their own people, without those white liberals uh, undermining their faith. Because I remember... Uh, I mean, I wasn't there at the time, but uh, back in the 1920s and 10s and so on, 
you you know the 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 black people were were not like these um these rabble rousing radical leftist types you know who, who are thinking everything was owed to them and that they were entitled to everything because of slavery that went on back when whatever excuse they can to get them to smash and destroy you know and think that they're accomplishing something by that um and i still as i travel i think i find that uh, some of the most respectful, thoughtful people I encounter are black people. Whether they're behind the counter at the airlines or on the airplanes, as um, good as they do a lot of air travel, or, or just uh, out and about in the stores and, and in, uh, on the street. I and mean, I just find them uh, to be almost have a real a natural reverence for anything that speaks of God. And I can see why the missionaries wanted to go to them. I can see why the, the white missionaries in France and wherever else wanted to go to these African countries because they might well have found a greater reception and a more devout and loving reception for the things of God than they saw in their own people at home who had kind of just gone up with it and took it for granted. Maybe that's white privilege that you talk about. And they didn't appreciate their faith. I mean, there were missionaries who went off and they didn't want to come back to their native lands because they found a reception and a love for God among the native peoples they went and they took the faith to. And they felt closer to them than they did often to their, to their own uh, people in their own towns and villages back in Europe, who seemed to be so... <coughs> jaded to the things of God and almost pharisaical. You know? I myself wanted to go as a missionary to Africa when I was ordained. That was my intention. I'd written books about the missionaries who were sent by the church back centuries past and I found their lives so inspiring that that's what I really wanted to, to do. I mean, God evidently had other plans. But in reading the stories of these missionaries' lives and seeing the sacrifices they made, you also read about the reception they had. And this, there were enemies of the faith who wanted to kill them and often did. But there were also very heroic souls who came with uh, a, a real desire for truth and, and uh, and embraced our Lord with all their hearts and souls, and sometimes they would give their lives too as as martyrs, you know. And to see that reception, you know, there, there's a beautiful uh, documentary about Archbishop of yeah. and his work among the the Africans in French-speaking Africa. <clears throat> he became the Apostolic Nuncio of the Holy See there, and the tremendous wholehearted embrace of the faith was just thrilling to see. And um, how Vatican II was like this, this, this poison gas. It was like acid rain falling upon the faith in Africa. And how he saw <clears throat> just dissolving all the work of all those, <clears throat> all those years and uh, decades of work and actually centuries of work by Catholic missionaries. He saw the people there embracing not only the faith, but with it, a respect for each other, as well as a love for God, a respect for each other that came from a love for God, 
a willingness to work together, and uh, a real prosperity that was coming to them. Um, but, of course, he saw the enemies of that at work, too. You know? uh, there in Africa, uh, but also back in the Vatican. It was Vatican, too. He saw that. That's one of the things that moved him to take the stand he did, because he thought, in a sense, he was defending them, the peoples who had come to Christ uh, to believe and love Christ because of the work of these missionaries. Uh, he was trying to be a voice for them as well. Um, I I could see how someone like an Isaac Jogues or a Jean de Babeuf, you know, one of the great North American martyrs whose feast day we just celebrated, would not only be willing to go if they had to, but were begging to go to uh, mission lands. Notably, they came to our own country, worked among the Hurons, and were eventually cruelly martyred by the Iroquois. But they made that decision to accept that martyrdom before they ever got on the boat in Europe. Um, just for the sake of bringing, you know, the faith to those who were just living and dying. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an idyllic life by any means, as the, as the liberals would like to paint it, you know. No. Um, it was a very cruel life. You know, I mean, when you read the story of, of St. Saint, of Saint Isaac Jog, for example, sitting there in the longhouses of the, of the, of even the, even the Hurons, the friendly Hurons, <clears throat> and, and the Indian, uh, the, the Huron Indian, seeing that he wasn't eating anything, and poking a stick into a pot, you know, on a, on a, on a fire, I mean, the whole place was filled with smoke and the stench, and, and uh, and the Huron <clears throat> sticking a sharp stick in and drawing out a piece of meat and putting it in front of the missionary's face and saying, come on, eat. It's a human hand. It was a human hand he had, an, an enemy, and they, probably an Iroquois that captured and tortured to death. And they were, he was offering that. That's the kind of life they lived. The liberals wanted to think, oh, isn't that wonderful? That's natural. Human isn't human nature just grand? And... Uh, this is what those missionaries went to rescue these people from. And they were great heroes, you know. And I consider Marshbishop Lefant to be a great hero, too, because he was one of them. And there's no doubt in my mind he would have been very willing to lay down his life and honored, felt honored to do so. Well, uh, God evidently didn't want me to have that honor yet, <laughs> so we'll see. But, um, you know, if somebody has a racist attitude and just says, you know, I hate that person, I don't trust that person, I dislike that person because of the color of his skin, you know, and that's it, I don't know anything about him, that's, that's what I distrust about him. Then I would say, that, that is wrong, and that is contrary to everything Catholicism stands for. It is certainly not in the spirit of the Catholic Church, and it is not traditional Catholicism, by any means. And uh, this is part of, the, of actually the liberal mentality of setting people against people. Tom, I'm telling you, the mentality of, of the racist white people is as much of the plan of the liberals as the hatred of blacks. They're trying to stir up hatred of blacks for whites. They also want the hatred of whites for blacks. They want that. They've got to start, remember, warfare, class warfare 
is the fundamental Marxist line. And they have made a lot of hay out of racist warfare. They consider that to be racist warfare, to make it look like class against class, black against white. They're trying to make it look like the same thing. And uh, we cannot allow ourselves to fall into their trap uh, of racism. You know? So that is the, uh, a fundamental uh, Marxist attack against the very nature of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Well, we're out of time, Father, but thank you, Father. This is very, very inspiring. Very well, I, I, hope, I hope so, Tom. Yeah. It means something to somebody, anyway. But uh, God bless you, Tom. No Thanks for your time tonight, Father. So, good night. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.